We'll hear argument now in number 91-126, Howard Wyatt versus Bill Cole and John Robbins. Mr. Wade. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. My client, Howard Wyatt, the petitioner, is a cattle farmer in Simpson County, Mississippi. He had a cattle partnership with the respondent, Bill Cole. In July of 1986, the partners weren't getting along very well, and they were discussing... To say the least. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. They were discussing breaking up the partnership. Now, they had never been, been able to agree on what the terms were or how they were going to break it up, and they had further discussions scheduled. The day before they were to meet for further discussions on breaking up the partnership, my client, Mr. Wyatt, who's not a very sophisticated man, and who has less than a high school education, comes home and he finds out at the farm in Simpson County, he finds on his property, Mr. Cole, the respondent, his attorney, the other respondent, Mr. Robbins, and a bunch of deputy sheriffs and other people going about the process of taking possession of partnership property. That's what he finds when he gets there. He's never, through uh, two days of taking over the property, they never serve him with any papers, but they do after they've taken what Cole contends is his share of the partnership property. As it turns out, they have an order from the judge that says take the 23 head of cattle and other personal property. They take possession of it. Now, Your Honor, these cattle are Brahma cattle, which uh, probably means uh, not much to most members of this court, but it's a peculiar uh, type of cow. And that is that a Brahma, uh, if Your Honors have ever watched a rodeo, once these cattle have ever been driven, with horses, if they've ever been chased with dogs, they become mean and unmanageable. You can't keep them out of fence. And after that, their value is, is diminished. They're worth nothing more than uh, just what they're worth by the pound. If you're gentle with the cattle, if you treat them right, uh, some of these cattle, one of the cows' testimony was worth $6,000, a registered uh, gentle animal. But after this, after the running of the cattle and the manner in which they were taken over, uh, uh, I might say analogous, uh, Justice White, to some football players that you've seen. On one occasion, they're gentle, and then you go out on the field, and they they become tough and ornery, and that's what happened to these cattle by raising yeah, this. When you run them enough, they become very gentle. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Your Honor, this uh, blame of cattle are probably not that important to most of us, even though uh, Mississippians probably have more appreciation than some of us that live in Washington, D.C. But to, to my client, Mr. Mr. White, these animals were very important to him. They're important to his family. It's what he'd done. He had a job in the factory. Well, does that really bear on the constitutional issue? No, sir. It uh, probably doesn't, except that the defendants are claiming good faith and innocence, and I think it might have some uh, bearing on that, that they would have known what they were going to do to him. But, but, in, but the good faith and innocence claim goes to the, their knowledge about the unconstitutionality of the statute, not to the disposition of the cattle. Yes, sir. That's, that's, uh, that's correct, Your Honor. The... Uh, the end result of it, in any event, was that, uh, that a hearing was finally held. The uh, Mississippi statute provided for a, a pre-seizure, strike that, a pre-hearing seizure. You go out and seize somebody's property on making an affidavit, and then you have a hearing later. That was basically the scheme of the statute. And, of course, Mr. No, it's not a pre-seizure uh, pre hearing. It's a post-seizure hearing. That's correct, Your Honor. The... Uh, the Mississippi statute uh, uh, provided 
or allowed, it could be interpreted to provide the Mississippi Supreme Court's later rule as an incorrect interpretation, but it could be read to say that you can go see somebody's property and then have the hearing later. Just file your affidavit with a judge that you're entitled to the property. He automatically uh, issues an order to go pick up the property, and then you have the hearing later after posting a bond. So you can be sued, of course, if, if you were wrong in, uh, in making the seizure. So that's basically the statutory scheme, and that's the way that uh, they were able to come take the cattle. And, and after having them a few days, uh, Mr. Cole transported them to Texas, uh, even though a state judge ruled that the, all the replevin was wrong in the first place. Well, it, uh, you had a post-seizure post hearing. That's what right. happened at the hearing. Thank you, Your Honor. At the post-seizure hearing, the circuit judge ruled that the replevin was erroneously issued under state law, that this dividing up a partnership is not... Uh, within the replevin statute. You're not wrongfully detaining property when you detain it as a partner. So what did he order? He ordered him, I might point this out, John, he ordered him to bring the cattle back or pay damages. But at this point, of course, if you brought the cattle back, that wouldn't remedy the wrong because the damages was caused in large part by chasing them. And then what happened? Right, let, me, let, me, let me finish my answer if I might. And also, Your Honor, my client, who never had any history of psychiatric problems, suffered a mental breakdown, was hospitalized. And the, the uh, remedy of bringing the cattle back, which the state judge ordered, wouldn't have cured that. But in any event, he didn't follow the judge's order. He had uh, he'd taken advantage of the replevin statute as far as he wanted to use it. And Mr. Cole just did not follow the order of the state judge. Uh, Cole claimed his lawyer, Robbins, never told him about it. Robbins says he told him about it, and he doesn't know why he didn't follow it. But anyway, he didn't follow the order of the state judge. And then what happened? Your Honor, the next thing that happened was we decided for strategic reasons and because we believed erroneously as it turned out we'd be better off in the uh, United States District Court, we uh, took a non-suit of our uh, pending proceeding. The state judge had said he owed us damages, but we didn't know how much damages or how the state law was going to be interpreted. And we took a voluntary non-suit of the state replevin action and filed suit in the United States District Court. So that's, that's how this case got started. Now, Your Honor, even though uh, 42, and, and, and I, I, I feel like I'm trite in saying this, even though 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 says in the broadest of terms that everybody, every person who violates another's constitutional rights under color of law uh, is subject to damages, even though the statute says that, under well-settled principles that this Court has announced in uh, many decisions, the district judge held that just about everybody involved was, was clearly immune from suit. Everybody. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And, and very little question about it. Most of it we abandoned in the district court. We sued everybody, but most of it we abandoned because we thought this court's decisions didn't leave us any room. Was this absolute immunity or qualified? All right, sir. In this case, they're claiming qualified immunity for qualified. private defendants. And that's Just, what the district judge ruled. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. The state was immune, of course, because of the 11th Amendment. Of course, everybody knows the judge was immune, and of course we didn't sue the judge. Everybody knows that he was immune for making a judicial decision. The compelling reasons why the officers were immune, the judge told them to go out there and, and uh, seize the cattle. And uh, they couldn't be put in a position very well of violating the court's order or being held in contempt. But in addition to that, we had the qualified immunity, which we think is very tough to uh, overcome. But those immunities. So we just, even though the statute says, here you are, you got a remedy, uh, under the immunity doctrines as they've developed, we didn't have any remedy because, and the, and the reason we're here today, and the only person that was involved that was not subject to, to uh, decisions of this court, and we don't believe that the decisions of this court have been followed in this case, was Cole and his attorney, Robbins. That is, the private party immunities. Immunity of private parties 
who violate constitutional rights. And that's the question that's before the court today. Uh, Justice O'Connor in Forrester versus White uh, sounded a familiar theme for this court, a, a theme that is said over and over again in these immunity uh, cases uh, when Your Honor said, we don't extend immunity beyond what its policy considerations are. In applying immunity, we look to the policies that the immunity was created for. That was said uh, directly in Forrester v. White and is a theme, I think, in this court's uh, qualified immunity cases. Now, Your Honor, the policies that this court has announced in qualified immunity cases are very clear and are just about the opposite of any policies that might be involved in this case. For example, this court has said and said over and again, probably beginning with Harlow v. Fitzgerald, but over and over again, we want to attract citizens to public office. We don't want to make it undesirable for a citizen, unnecessarily undesirable for a citizen to hold public office. We're not involved in that. These, uh, Mr. Robbins and Mr. Cole uh, are, are not uh, candidates for public office. They're just the opposite. They're private people. And then, uh, Your Honors, probably the strongest case for immunity is the law enforcement officer, the fellow that's out there and he's trying to decide whether to make an arrest. If he, uh, if he makes the arrest, uh, this court has said we don't want to hold him liable for exercising his judgment and trying to save society from some criminal act and making the arrest. We don't want to put a burden on that discretionary decision. We want him to be able to make that decision on whether somebody committed a crime and whether he ought to be arrested based on exercising his discretion, carrying out a public function. Of course, that's not involved in this case. That has nothing to do with this case. And then, Your Honor, probably the strongest thing or the thing that's so applicable to public officials and so inapplicable to a private party, you look at Mitchell v. Forsyth, this court made it very clear that uh, it's not just... It's not just an immunity from damages, it's an immunity from suit. The official is not supposed to take his, his uh, mind off of his important public duties, take his time away from him by having to defend the suit. And so not only uh, is it a freedom from uh, uh, damages, but it's a freedom from suit, so he can take an immediate appeal. Now, to put, put these people in that position and say, uh, we don't want to take their minds off of public duties and they can take an immediate appeal is just, a, uh, is just totally inconsistent with the policies of Mitchell v. Forsyth. Mr. Wade, uh, that, that, that may be true with respect to uh, official immunity, but we, we adopted official immunity for 1983 actions because it, it was in existence in, 18, in 1870. Uh, there, there was also a private immunity in 1870, though, for, uh, for people bringing, uh, uh, bringing legal actions. I mean, uh, uh, you couldn't... Uh, you couldn't uh, uh, sue and recover for false arrest, for malicious prosecution, uh, for abuse of process, without showing that the person uh, uh, brought that legal process without probable cause, which meant that the person had to have entertained a subjective belief that, uh, that he was not justified in going ahead. Now, why shouldn't that same immunity, uh, not, not official immunity, but the immunity of a person invoking the legal process, which existed in 1870. Why shouldn't that be applied to 1983? Right. Your, Your Honor, first, uh, it's, uh, I think it's probably not quite accurate to characterize that as an immunity. I, I consider it's more accurate to characterize that as an affirmative defense to suit. All right. That is to say that uh, if you uh, have probable cause or malice, it might be be some defenses to the suit that could be raised. No, it was not a defense. The plaintiff had to show it. 
So I don't care whether you call it an immunity or not. Right. It would have been your burden to show right. it. Right. In any way, it was a matter that would be taken up at mm -hmm. trial. It's a matter that would be taken up at trial. It's not a defense from suit. It's an, an immunity, as, as, as this Court has construed it, is a defense uh, from even having to undergo a trial. Well, no, you, you would have to plead it. You would have to plead that subjectively malicious uh, frame of mind, or you wouldn't even get past the... Uh, uh, summary judgment stage. Well, Your Honor, I, I certainly don't mean to argue with the court. I, can, I thought my interpretation of it was it was an affirmative defense. But in any event, of course, there was no summary judgment procedure. When I looked at the precedents, the conclusion that I drew from it was it was a matter that would be uh, submitted to the jury at trial, the issue of malice, an affirmative, well, whether it's an affirmative defense or not, a matter for the fact finder. And, Your Honor, I wouldn't quarrel. Let me say this, Your Honor. I wouldn't quarrel. The Mississippi Supreme Court, I think, took the correct view of this matter in a case that the respondent cited. And they said there might be some defenses you could raise at trial. You know, you might be able to show, might be Mr. Cole would come up at trial and say, well, I thought the statute was legal. On its, uh, uh, if the court wanted to adopt a, a subjective good faith uh, standard, I don't find that nearly so objectable as saying you can't even get to, front, to first base. This is an immunity from suit. Yes, sir. It, Justice White, uh, ironically, we should have because, and I think this is another important uh, uh, facet about this case. If, if this court is going to adopt a policy, and that's what it has to do, Your Honor, Justice White in the Burns case very recently said this court has no authority to just judicially create policies, and, and uh, Justice Scalia, that's why, of course, the court looks to the common law background. But uh, uh, in this case, if this court adopts a policy, if this court says we're going to have a policy that private defendants can't be sued, I think it's important to think about what policy interest is it that we're implementing. And to me, that is the policy of the state of Mississippi, the policy of the state of Mississippi to protect to allow citizens to rely on statutes. That would be the policy that the court would be looking at, that particular policy. And I think that 42 U.S.C. 1988 uh, counsels this court to look at what state uh, policies are. Now, the state of Mississippi, Your Honor, and uh, on, on the comment that we should have stayed in state court in retrospect, we certainly should have because the uh, a case that counsel cited, uh, consistent with his ethical due to cite uh, uh, cases contrary to his position, the Mississippi Supreme Court has said in the foremost case that he cited that they don't see, in effect, they don't see any Mississippi policy prohibiting a suit against a person that uh, wrongfully implements or uh, wrongfully brings a replevant action. That's the policy that the Mississippi Mississippi announced. Now, the, the, the thing that I don't understand... You, you think, then, Mr. Wade, that the outcome here should determine, should depend on what the policy is in each of the 50 states? Uh, no, no, Your Honor, I don't. The only point that I, I might say it wouldn't differ in this case because all the states have similar policies, but I'll get to, get to that in a second. But the only thing that I'm saying, Your Honor, if we're talking about a policy decision, we're talking about a policy, that's what we're talking about, is this court, as a matter of policy, going to create an immunity? I'm saying that if the court does that, the policy that it would have to be implementing or trying to carry out is a, an interest the state of Mississippi has. That would be the policy. Now, Your Honor, I understand the danger that Your Honor, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, is talking about, that you'd have a different rule of immunity from state to state. I might say, Your Honor, that in Robertson v. Wagaman, uh, this court addressed that and said 42 U.S.C. 1988 counsels. A means is bound to be some differences. Of course, we have different statutes of limitation because we look at state law. So is your answer to the question that I asked you yes or no? Your Honor, my answer to this question is it would be uniform across the states. The reason I say that is because in Dora v. Connecticut, this is the most recent replevin uh, uh, case that's decided. 
there's an appendix to that opinion that outlaws the replevin laws across the state, and it's uh, a practically uniform, if not uniform, requirement that when somebody uh, uh, brings a replevin action, he posts a bond. In other words, all the states contemplate that the private person wrongfully bringing a replevin action can be sued. That's what I'm saying, Your Honor. It wouldn't make any difference in this case. Because you say the policy of all 50 states is to allow uh, an action against uh, someone who wrongfully brings a replevin action without any requirement of uh, malice? Yes, Your Honor. Well, Your Honor, the, the statutes, I think the language of the statutes just simply says if you wrongfully sue out a writ of replevin, you can be sued. Well, of course, th that leaves the whole question up in the air. What does the word wrongfully mean? Yes, sir, I understand. I'll, I'll, the only point that I'm making, Your Honor, that's correct, but the only point that I'm making is the states, as a matter of policy, do not have a policy that people who bring replevin actions are immune from suit. No, but you, you, you don't answer the question of whether there, might, there uh, might be states in which there would be some showing of malice required, if you're talking about just state causes of action. Well, Your Honor, in the first, in the first place, I, I, I would assume, at least for sake of argument, that in any type of suit, as a factual matter, any type of suit that's based on some type of abusive process or malicious prosecution theory, which is what this essentially is, that type of suit, there are certain uh, factual matters that the jury could take into account. And I think one of those might be uh, whether this person uh, acted intentionally or something. But that doesn't, the qualified immunity is an objective standard. It's an immunity from suit. And that's what, all I'm asking well, is. Excuse court, me, Mr. Ray. I'm, I'm not sure that, I think it's one and the same thing. I, I think you, you, you try to characterize the one as an immunity and the other as a, a matter of evidence, all the immunity is, for officers, is that you have no cause of action, if it's qualified immunity, you have no cause of action unless you prove bad faith. And it's the same thing here. Against a private individual, you have no cause of action unless you prove bad faith. Now, both of them, you can either characterize them as immunity, or you can characterize them as what must be proven at trial, but they are one and the same thing. Excuse me, Your Honor, but I would uh, differ uh, with the court just in this uh, in this respect. The qualified immunity, as this court has announced it, is a legal standard of objective reasonableness. Although the term bad faith is used, it really has nothing to do with bad faith. It's a question of whether they acted contrary to law. And what I'm saying is, there are certain matters. Uh, uh, the court, I'm asking this court to rule, there is no qualified immunity in the sense that this court has applied it to public officials. There is no qualified immunity. It's not necessary, Your Honor, for this court to even reach the question of what kind of matters might be admissible into evidence at trial. And I'm simply suggesting to the court that when we go to trial, we will probably call some lawyers. And they would say, well, it was at least known everywhere that there's some question about whether this is constitutional or not. You'd at least know there was a question about it. I mean, maybe you don't make, maybe it's still qualified immunity, but everybody ought to know there's some question about this type of procedure. Mr. Cole will get on the stand and he'll say, well, I thought the statute was valid. And we'll ask Mr. Robbins, well, didn't you tell him there was at least a question about it? Didn't you tell him there was at least a question that this court has said again and again that these things are of questionable legality? And the Mississippi Supreme Court, Your Honor, in its opinion, appeared shocked that anybody would do anything like this and said that uh, its understanding of the statute was that there had to be some emergency reason to go out and seize property before hearing. That's, you can't get that from the statute. But the Mississippi Supreme Court, if anybody is going to have a policy against not suing or allowing reliance on a state statute, it is surely the Mississippi Supreme Court. 
Uh, I might say the Attorney General, Your Honor, was an amicus curiae in this case, and he took no position on this issue. He said, I concede the statute's unconstitutional, but he didn't take any position that, you, that uh, I want our private citizens not to be sued. What about Cole? What, what should be the uh, standard for his uh, liability? Suppose, yeah, he doesn't know anything about the law. Let's assume that. Um, is, does he have a good faith defense under your view of what he... Uh, your Honor, my opinion of how the court uh, should uh, decide the case as to Cole is that first, uh, disagreeing perhaps with Justice uh, Scalia, that there is no common law uh, uh, background sufficiently close to this to justify this court giving any immunity at all. So immunity, which is a legal defense, is just out. Qualified immunity is out. I don't know that it's appropriate for this court or if it, uh, to announce exactly what defenses maybe Cole could raise down in the uh, courts. But if the court is going to do that, I would just suggest that those analogous defenses that existed at common law, Mr. Cole ought to be able to get up there and say, I think, well, I, I thought the statute was legal. And we asked him on cross-examination, well, Mr. Cole, are you telling me that you think you can go out and seize somebody's property before any trial, not knowing whether you're going to win the trial? Well, I, 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 I want to know what the standard is, because he would say, well, my attorney told me there's a statute on the books. I thought that it was all right. Suppose he, number one, demonstrates his subjective Good faith. He acted in good faith. He thought that he had a right to do what he did. All right, so let's, let's, what result? I, I think the jury in that case would probably decide in Mr. Cole's favor if it thinks well, the lawyer it, never it, told him. Well, is the jury entitled to an instruction under 1983 that uh, subjective good faith is a defense? No, sir. That's, no, they're not, Your Honor. And what I'm saying is it's a well, It seems to me that earlier you conceded, and I think perhaps uh, there, there may be some, some, some good reasons for that that there should be a subjective good-faith defense. Whether you call it a defense or an immunity, I, I really don't care. Right. And it seems to me there may be sound reasons for that. Did, do you concede that that's, that that's a, a, a prudent course for the law to take? Your Honor, the, the, the appropriate course in this case, in my opinion, is to decide the case before the court, which is that the qualified immunity doctrine, as this court has announced it, is not to be applied to private defendants. Now, that's the end of that discussion. Now, the second question is, what about defenses that Cole could raise, such Let's as... assume that we think that's before us. Arch, such as, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I think, then, that the, that the court could give the jury an instruction that the plaintiff must prove that Cole acted with malice. I think that, that that very well might be an appropriate instruction. But you have to remember, Your Honor, that the Mississippi... Can we get that as a matter of federal law under 1983? Uh, Your Honor, the, the state law standards are incorporated into 1983, as I understand it, by 1988, and generally in a bad, in a malicious prosecution or abusive process type suit, that is an element of the case. So we do this tort by tort? Well, Your Honor, in, uh, the, the fact that we have 1988 indicates to some extent there's going to be variance uh, among the states. But I don't think there's any great disparity. I think any, uh, as far as I know, any state that talks about a malicious prosecution or an abusive process type of situation requires malice. Well, but I mean, your cause of action is under 1983. That's correct, Your Honor, but when 1983 doesn't provide the, uh, the appropriate rules of decision, there's nothing in the statute that's just general that you look to the common law or to the, uh, to the state law. And we think that, Your Honor, we think that uh, even if the, if the jury is instructed on malice, that we had to prove that as an element of the case, assuming that, that's, that such an instruction is given, we think that we had evidence that, uh, that we could have proved that with. But the trouble was the district judge ruled that this was a matter of law, and that's consistent with Your Honor's uh, decisions 
and that we were not going to be able to submit the case to the jury. Why would we, why would we apply these defenses as a matter of state law? We, we don't apply immunity, official immunity, as a matter of state law. We, we simply determined that when this federal statute was passed in 1870, there was such a thing. We changed it a little bit, but, but basically uh, there existed an official immunity, so we apply it as a matter of federal law. Why shouldn't we do the same thing right. well, with, 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 with respect to uh, private immunity or defenses against, uh, against liability? Well, your, your honors do apply state law and have frequently applied state law on uh, various defenses that might come up, such as the statute of limitations or such as uh, survivorship rules. That's, you know, in the uh, Wilson v. Garcia, and, and 1988 contemplates that you'll look to common law or state law for the rules of decision in a lot of cases. And I see nothing wrong with doing that in this case. I also see no inconsistency, assuming that's a bad thing. You, you know any other case where we, where we look to state law for yeah. defenses to a federal cause of action? Yes, sir. Uh, Wilson v. Garcia on the statute of limitations, is, which is... No, I'm not talking about sta- I'm not talking about... Statutes of limitations. I'm talking about substantive defenses to the cause of action. Not well. Uh, it seems very strange. You create a federal cause of action. Say, however, what defenses exist to this federal cause of action? Would be a matter of state well, law. That's very strange. Uh, your, your Honor, all that I can say is it's always my assumption in trying 1983 cases, and uh, it appears to be universally done. If there's no rule, there's no federal rule. You know, if, if we're talking about a cause of action, there's nothing in any statute that says what the elements are for this cause of action. You've got to look somewhere for the rule of law. So to me, the logical place to look and dictate it by 1988 is state law or the common law. That, that's what the statute directs the court to do. And, of course, as in the area of B. Tompkins, there's no general federal common law. So that's the only place uh, logically that you could look. Uh, Mr. Wade, uh, why, uh, why wasn't the bond... Uh Valid in this case. Why, why couldn't you collect on the bond? Uh, Justice White, the bondsman was uh, Attorney Robbins' son and Mr. Uh, Cole's wife. The wife was in Texas and the son had no assets at Wichita. Well, was the, uh, what was the condition of the bond? Just uh, pay any damages that might accrue because of the wrongful suing out of the writ of replevin. was the condition. Uh, so uh, if the bondsman had been good, uh, the bondsman could recover against... Uh, Against his principle, I suppose. Yeah, Your Honor, if, had the bond uh, been good, Mississippi replevin law, we're just talking about state law now for wrongful replevin, yes. had very limited damages rules, which was part of the reason why we came to uh, federal court. The damages were the loss of uh, use of the property and the value of the property. And there hadn't been any state precedent. Oh, but anyway, anyway, whatever you could have collected on the bond, the bondsman could have collected from his principal. Yes, sir, that would be correct, Your Honor. And uh, it wouldn't have... And the, and and the uh, and the principal wouldn't have been able to plead uh, uh, any kind of immunity or any defense against uh, that's, that kind of an action. Uh, that's an interesting point, Your Honor. And and, I, and uh, the uh, as I, the way the statute is written, it's an absolute it's an absolute liability. It's like playing with dynamite. If you wrongfully replevin property, you're liable. And I and I hope, I, as I said to Justice uh, Scalia. Uh, uh, oh, the risk is uh, the, the risk of an of an of the risk of a uh, illegal uh, uh, replevin is on the person who yes replevins. Yes. Now those are the the uh, justice. I, I said that to goes justice. For, you think, uh, and and I suppose it goes for uh, constitutional tort. Yeah. Your Honor, what I would like to... Mr. Wade, just a minute. You, you've, you've said that the Mississippi Supreme Court said if, if, wrongly, if, if a, a, a replevin action is wrongfully brought, the 
plaintiff is liable for damages. Has the Mississippi Supreme Court defined what it means by wrongfully? Just failing to comply with the statute, Your Honor, is essentially what it would amount to, that it was not justified. Is that what the Mississippi Supreme Court has said? And I don't know that that language is there, but that's the situation. There are two situations. Well, just a minute. I I didn't ask you what the situation was. I asked you what the Supreme Court of Mississippi has held with respect to the meaning of wrongful replevin. It's held two things, Your Honor. First, a replevin that the court ultimately rules was not justified as a wrongful replevin. Under the state law. Under the state law. It's ruled in that situation. It's ruled in a second situation. It's ruled in this 1983 type of situation. Those are the two situations. You mean where the replevin statute has been held unconstitutional? The Mississippi Supreme Court, Your Honor, this is the case that I was referring to. The Mississippi Supreme Court has addressed this precise issue before us and held there was no immunity as a matter of law. Well, was it a case in which the replevin statute was held unconstitutional? Yes, sir. It was. It's the case that's cited. I might give the court the cite. And that's why I said it. But you don't know whether you could have collected under the bond in that case. In that case, could you have collected under the bond? I would assume so. That wasn't the question. But let's not assume it. Because the bond may just be conditioned on a rightful replevin under state law and not on the possible unconstitutionality of the statute. Your Honor, the case I consider to be all fours with this case. The only difference in that case and this one is that we did have a ruling by a state judge in this case that the ruling was wrong, that the replevin was wrongful as a matter of state law. What's that cite for the Supreme Court of Mississippi? 563 Southern 2nd, 1387. Okay. Thank you. My time is up, Your Honor. Thank you. 563 Southern 2nd, what? What was the page number? 1387, was it? 1387, Your Honor. Thanks. Mr. McNamara, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in analyzing whether to extend immunity to parties who come before it as Section 1983 defendants, this Court has engaged in a dual history and policy analysis. I would first address the issue of what is a compelling public policy which would cause this Court to formally extend immunity to those persons who act such as my clients, Mr. Cole and Mr. Robbins did. And I would say, Your Honor, that the public policy that is foremost is that the courts want to encourage that citizens have a right to rely upon a statute which has not been declared unconstitutional and which they do not suspect to be unconstitutional. What if they should? If they should. What if objectively they should suspect it? If they fail to meet the objective standard, in other words, I think Oh, so it's an objective test you're talking about? Your Honor, I would want this Court to approve the objective standard which was applied in this case by the District Court and approved by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I would also state But not just a subjective good faith test? No, Your Honor. Okay. Go ahead. There are reasons why the objective case, contrary to what the general argument of counsel for the petitioner seems to be that the extension of any immunity, and this is said in his brief, 
the extension of any immunity under these circumstances is going to make it practically impossible for there ever to be a recovery against private party defendants. And, Your Honor, for instance, in the case which is before the court, uh, Mr. Cole and Mr. Robbins were granted the extension of immunity by the district court, approved by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, as to the actions which were taken up to the district court judge's April opinion, which said the statute in question is unconstitutional. Then, when Mr. Cole kept those cattle out in Texas, he was subject to damages in this situation, or at least to have the question brought before the jury. So at least in this case is an example of a private party defendant who was at least exposed to liability before a jury and who ultimately, by the Fifth Circuit's mandate, is going to have to pay some attorney's fees for the conduct which he engaged in after the declaration of unconstitutionality by the district court, since he did not comply with the order. Um, a second point that, the, that seems to be made by Mr. Wyatt's counsel is, is that that's a new cause of action? No, Your Honor. In the, the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, in a I mean, when he uh, fails to obey a ruling of the, of the district court that was made in, the, in this 1983 suit, I assume you say that's a new and independent oh. violation for which there must be some other 1983 action? No, Your This Honor. is just a contempt of court? No, Your Honor. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed everything which came to it from the district court except that it remanded for a finding of attorney's fees against Mr. Cole for the reason that he had engaged in conduct which violated the statute after the district court judge had declared it unconstitutional. The, ju the, the jury had found no damages at the trial below because, in, because for the main reason that counsel for Mr. White conceded that there were no damages occurring even for the mental anguish which he alleges his client to have suffered that no damages occurred after the declaration of unconstitutionality, that all of the damages which Mr. Wyatt was claiming, he said, occurred before the declaration of unconstitutionality, when Mr. Wade has alluded to the great emotion and upset that he experienced because of the taking of his cattle. Now, a second public policy reason to consider is that if the court does not grant immunity to private persons who acted as Mr. Cole and Mr. Robbins did, then the court would be putting the burden of paying for the unconstitutionality of Mississippi statute on the persons who absolutely have the minimal involvement in this case. And in this court's decision last term in Burns versus Reed, in discussing the extension of, well, actually the issue was, of course, whether the prosecutor would be entitled to absolute immunity in his role of giving advice to the police in the majority opinion at, at I've got 114 lawyers edition second 564 there is a discussion by the majority there as to why should we extend this grant of absolute immunity to the prosecutor in his role in advising the police and then grant only the limited or qualified immunity to the police so this court has previously looked at who has the most involvement, who has the most ability to determine the unconstitutionality of the statutes. And one of the comments that the court makes there is, 
that those police officers are certainly not going to have the law training that prosecutors have. But one of the people here for whom you're seeking immunity is a lawyer, I gather. And that, that person would certainly have law training, one assumes. That's right, Your Honor. And in uh, Harlow versus Fitzgerald, in the majority opinion, when it's discussing the objective standard which would be applied, that this court says that we're going to look at it uh, as whether or not a reasonable person would know that the action taken would, would be a clear violation of the constitutional rights of the defendant. And further on in that opinion, it clarifies, the opinion is clarified where the court says, we're going to look at the reasonable government official. And so in this instance, in the application of the objective standard, one can look at the reasonable attorney. One could look at the reasonable person who's just somewhat casually engaged in the cattle business, or one could look at whether the 1983 defendant was Citibank, who may be bringing replevin actions at, at numbers per hour throughout the United States. Mr. McNamara, uh, as, as I recollect, one, one reason we, uh, we have adopted the objective standard for official immunity, which, uh, which, as I recollect, was not the common law approach, was that uh, officials are subject to suit all the time. They'll spend their whole lifetime in court. Uh, if uh, every time uh, uh, they obey their orders, they, they have to go through a, a trial to show uh, subjective good faith. Now, that isn't, the, that isn't the case with respect to private individuals. They're not going to be drawn into this thing repeatedly. Why do they need uh, that, same kind of, uh, that same kind of protection? Obviously, then that... Even the Citibank example that I gave, gave is not going to have the potential exposure that the public officer would. But it seems to me that there's an important public policy in encouraging people, such as Mr. Cole and Mr. Robbins, to utilize procedures that are presumptively valid at the time they use them. Well, but sure there is, but we, we could uh, take account of that by giving uh, a good faith, uh, good faith immunity, subjective good faith immunity, not just the objective standard. Your Honor, and in this case, that the issue which Petitioner raised in, in the brief was the question of whether or not there should be an extension of immunity, and the Petitioner did not argue and some alternative to the objective standard of immunity which was applied by the Fifth Circuit and by the, and by the District Court. And we would say under these circumstances, since it, there happened to have been in the case before the court extensive discovery, uh, this is not a situation coming before the court where there was simply um, pleadings and where my clients moved for summary judgment on the basis of Harlow Fitzgerald immunity. If there was some um, malicious conduct or if there, were, if there was some evidence of some special knowledge that either of my clients possessed below, then that was not put forward by, by the plaintiff at that time. And it would, our position would be that in this case, if the court should decide that there should be an extension of immunity, but it should be something other than the objective or reasonable objectiveness standard, from Harlow versus Fitzgerald, that remand would not be necessary because there's no indication of any good faith or lack of good faith on the part of. You think uh, 
Do you think uh, this defendant who was a lawyer should have been aware of uh, any decisions uh, in this court that might raise uh, a question about the validity of the uh, Replevin statute in Mississippi? Your Honor, I would rely upon what the district judge stated, and that is that at the time of the execution or use of the statute by John Robbins, that there was not complete agreement about the law. For instance, in the Mitchell versus W.T. Grant case involving, I believe it's Louisiana sequestration statute, uh, there were some similar infirmities there. For instance, I think that in that case, or in the case of that statute, that the, the writ of sequestration could be issued by a clerk, and there was a provision there that the uh, the person against whom the writ was issued could come into court and seek a dissolution. But there were similar um, safeguards available to the Mississippi statute. And I would say this. In 1975, the Mississippi legislature revised an earlier edition of the Replevin statute because the, the first addition, uh, which I'm familiar with, did not have a requirement of bond, did not have the availability for advancing the course on the docket. And so I would say that a reasonable attorney, even with more expertise in the area than, than Mr. Robbins had, would not not come to the conclusion that this statute was unconstitutional. May I ask you one question? Your opponent cited a case, I'm not sure I caught the name of it, by the Mississippi Supreme Court in 563 Southern 2nd, 1387. I don't think he cited it in his brief. Are you familiar with the case? I'm not, Your Honor, and okay, Mr. Wade... Uh, erroneously stated that I cited it. Uh, I didn't see it cited in anybody's that, I don't believe that I did, and I checked my table of contents to see if I had just forgotten that. Oh. Your Honor, uh, there, if there had been malicious conduct on the part of my clients in this case, there was a remedy available under state law. And, in fact, the remedy available under state law uh, for the wrongful attachment was a remedy of which the the petitioner in this case chose not to avail himself. Would, I would concede under Mississippi law that uh, the, the damages which are available for the suing out of wrongful attachment would not include the mental anguish which Mr. Wyatt alleges to have suffered. But there are Mississippi cases. How about the, uh, the damage to the cattle, if there was some? Yes, Your Honor. What? That, yes, what? That the damages would include that. For the... I don't, the uh, mental suffering of the cattle. Yes, Ron. Thank you for helping me out. Or their change of, of attitude, or whatever therapy might be necessary. For even Brahmas. Even Brahmas. Your Honor, I don't. Mr. Wade knows a lot more about Brahmas than I do, and I. But those damages would be available if, if there had been a decrease in the market value of those cattle as a result of the change in their behavior. Then that could be recovered under Mississippi law. Do you concede that under Luger against Edmondson Oil, there can be a cause of action under Section 1983 against a private defendant for use of a statute, state statute, that is later determined to be unconstitutional? Certainly, Your Honor. No question about that. And, and what we say is that we did not challenge that point, 
what we say is there is an immunity which ought to be available for the public policy reasons which I've stated. And I think the emphasis that I would want to place on public policy reasons has to do with the fact in this case, and I believe the Fifth Circuit alluded to this in the Folsom Investment Company case, it said that, or, that the first line of defense in these cases should be the legislature who passed it or the, the attorney general of the state who in some instances would enforce statutes and that the burden of paying for the unconstitutionality of the statute should not fall upon persons such as Wyatt and Cole. Mr. McMahon, when, when you said that there would be a remedy under Mississippi law for the suing out of a wrongful attachment, what do, what do you... What do, you, what do you mean by the suing out of a wrongful attachment? In, Would you have to prove knowing that it's wrongful? No, Your Honor. In, in the joint appendix which was submitted where uh, Judge Barber, the district judge in this case, was citing to Circuit Court Judges Jerry, Ye- Jerry Yeager's opinion uh, after dismissing the attachment that Judge Yeager said that Mr. Wyatt had, would be able to recover damages for wrongful attachment. That in the, in the initial suit in circuit court is that Judge Yeager said the Replevin statute was not what should have been utilized because these gentlemen were partners and they, they should not have resorted to the Replevin statute. So as my understanding of the record is that Judge Yeager was prepared to award some damages, but it wasn't all the damages to Mr. White felt that he was not on the basis that the Replevin statute was unconstitutional, but that it didn't cover this particular situation. Right, Your Honor. That there was not a declaration in the circuit court of unconstitutionality. It was simply you've picked out the wrong attempted remedy, uh, Mr. Cole, by coming here because you are partners and you should seek dissolution of your partnership and proceed under that particular set of statutes in Mississippi which provides for the splitting up of partnerships. Um, May I ask another case about Mississippi authorities? I understood your opponent to tell us that the Mississippi, I don't know which Mississippi court, had had held its own statute unconstitutional. Is that correct? I believe that is the earlier edition you're not. I'm, I, I don't know, Your Honor. I was not aware of it. Uh, it is cited in. I'm sorry, Your Honor. It's cited in our petition, the Underwood versus Foremost Financial Services case. And where is that cited again? It was in the brief of respondents in opposition to the petition for certiorari at page three. And what did it hold, Your Honor? Uh, the Supreme Court of Mississippi uh, was examining the, the application of good faith immunity to private defendants under color of state law. That's the case we talked about earlier. The That's right. Yeah, I see. Yeah. You were not counsel when the brief in opposition was filed. No, Your Honor, I was not. Um, in what the petitioner wants to do in this case is to deny the extension of immunity and when this court has denied the extension of immunity, it has relied in part on policy grounds and part on the historical inquiry, which I'll get to in a second. But for instance, in Owen versus City of Independence, 
that the court there at the end of the opinion makes the comment that basically that it has, as a matter of policy, equated the role, has done equity in that it provides, it would provide a plaintiff with a remedy. Uh, it would allow the official who acts in good faith to go about his duties without fear of being dragged into court. And it makes the public pay only for those unconstitutional policies which the state enforces. And so, therefore, it spreads the liability for the unconstitutionality of a statute among the citizens of the state. And that, can't, that would not be done in this case. It would be quite the opposite. It would be placed upon the private party. As far as historical analyses is concerned, this court has looked at historical analyses most strongly when it was denying or, or when it was granting full immunity is in the case of legislators, prosecutors, and judges. In the later inquiries, there is not such a, in such as in Anderson versus Creighton, there has not been a great reliance upon historical precedent. When a police officer at common law did not have reasonable grounds to act in effectuating arrest, an arrest or carrying out a search, then he had a defense which was based upon a subjective standard. And this court in Anderson versus Creighton adopted the Harlow versus Fitzgerald standard and said we will make it an objective reasonable standard. There's no reason logically then why that same standard cannot translate to be utilized by the private defendant. And one of the things that I think that, uh, that Wyatt overlooks is that the good faith the objective reasonableness standard, which is applied as an immunity in these cases, is, after all, an affirmative defense. And so the party asserting that affirmative defense has to come forward and on a motion for summary judgment bears the burden of showing that, that he would come under terms of the immunity. Your Honor, in this particular case, Mr. Wyatt, excuse me, Mr. Cole and Mr. Robbins utilized a statute which neither of them had re reason to believe was unconstitutional. And they were attempting to go about utilizing an orderly process, although it turned out to be the wrong process. Uh, and the court's reasoning below in the Fifth Circuit for the granting of the extension of immunity should be adopted here. Had, had uh, the Mitchell case and Georgia finishing and Fuentes and Snyadak been decided at the time no. that this uh, replevin was instituted? Oh, yes, Your Honor, they had. Mm -hmm. All of those had been. And you think that they don't make it pretty clear that a pre-judgment hearing is necessary? No, Your Honor, because... The Mississippi Replevin statute says or provides for a person to be able to come in and challenge the taking of the property, and I believe it gives it a hearing within three days to seek to set aside the the, uh, the writ of Replevin. And it would seem, at least under what the uh, this court said in the Mitchell case, that there were sufficient constitutional safeguards. But the important issue, perhaps, for the for the purposes of this case is in judging the conduct of the defendants under the objective reasonable standard, 
that the trial court said that objectively it could be determined that the statute was not one which was clearly unconstitutional at the time. Your Honor, the extension of qualified immunity in this situation would be uniform. It would be in keeping with the prior decisions of this court. It would be a just resolution for private party defendants who until Lugar v. Edmondson, those were among a class of persons who by most lawyers were not even dreamed to be potential Section 1983 defendants. And the holdings and the Addicts v. S.H. Crest Company and in other cases where a private party acts in conspiracy with a judge or public official, those holdings would be held intact. And furthermore, to use the example of Addicts v. Crest case, even if the court decided to grant qualified immunity in a situation such as that, those parties would not meet the objective reasonableness standard because there was a clear violation of constitutional rights. As it said, I believe in the dissent in Lugar v. Edmondson, makes a comment about Addicts v. Crest having occurred some ten years after Brown v. Board of Education. And for the public policy reasons and because there's adequate historical basis for an analogy to give a good faith defense, and because this court has adopted across the board Harlow v. Fitzgerald and other qualified immunity cases, we ask that this court affirm the holding of this circuit. Thank you, Mr. McNamara. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.